Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and areas of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact regarding last week's episode. You can listen back to the podcast on Newstalk.com or on iTunes. And as always, you can get in contact with us today by emailing between the lines at Newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up today, we'll be discussing Ireland's maternity services. We'll be looking at best practice and the services available and how they can be improved. Joining us to discuss in studio our panel today, Patricia Hughes, Chairwoman of the Midwives Association of Ireland, Dr Peter Boylan, former Master of the National Maternity Hospital, and also Cresha Lynch, who's the Chairperson of AIMS, the Association for Improvements in Maternity Services in Ireland. My thanks to you all for joining us today. Um, perhaps maybe, Peter Boylan, I might just start with yourself. If you want yes. to just give listeners maybe just a short sort of a snippet into your own background in terms of your dealing with maternity services um, in Ireland. And I suppose mainly... Give us a sense of your overview of what the services are like for pregnant women um, in this country today. Right. Well, by objective measures in terms of uh, how many babies um, do well coming through maternity services, the outcomes are very good and comparable to anything in the world. Um, In terms of maternal mortality, we're not the best in the world, but we're pretty much aligned with the best in Europe. Um, There are significant problems, however, in terms of the way the system is organised. There should be a separate uh, budget for maternity and gynaecological services. And there should also be separate governance of the maternity and gynaecological services in the hospitals around the country. My experience of dealing with a lot of issues and problems in hospitals and dealing with uh, inquests, for example, in many different hospitals around the country, and there's no hospital which is worse than any other, I think it's important to say that. Um, A real problem is that the maternity services are part of a general hospital. And when that happens, uh, and gynaecology services, when that happens, the first thing to get cut when there's pressure on the system is the maternity or the gynaecological services. So, for example, when there are a lot of trolleys in the accident and emergency department or when there's a flu crisis and it's in a general hospital, gynaecology beds get, get taken. Uh, and then women are on long waiting lists. And the waiting lists for gynaecological services and for gynaecology outpatient services in this country are appalling. Part of the reason for that is the difficulty in recruiting consultant staff, but a major issue, of course, is infrastructural deficits, and that's because the budgets uh, have not been separated. For example, in Cork, um, when the new maternity hospital was was built, uh, there was a new operating theatre which was not commissioned for almost a decade. And that was because the maternity hospital budget was part of the general hospital budget. And Cork ended up with one of the longest waiting lists for mater- for gynaecological problems for women. Just just to clarify, Peter, when you talk about gynaecological issues and maternity issues, I, I would yeah. have thought that if you've X number of women coming in to have a baby delivered or to deliver their baby, that that, that would be much more pressing in terms of the time constraints. Do you know when you talk about oh, the beds is, being yes. used? So how, why no, is it's it... the gynaecology pre- beds which are for women who are having surgery, for example, for prolapse or for cancer. Um, and a lot of these women who are on waiting lists for outpatient appointments, some of them may well be developing a cancer unknown to them and unknown to the doctors who are due to see them, the specialists who are due to see them in the clinics because of the, the difficulty in infrastructure and lack of uh, numbers of consultants in the system. So, but yes, maternity can't wait, obviously. If mm-hmm. you yeah. have a baby, you just got to get on with it. So um, a lot of the maternity units around the country are very, very stretched uh, with bed numbers and access and so on. 
So, uh, yeah, it, it's a real problem in infrastructural deficits. Okay, so you kind of mentioned at the outset things are good, they're not brilliant, but we're not the worst either. So we're sort of on par. No, with... and people who say, oh, we've got a third world health service really have never been to the third world. Um, and anybody who travels, I spent a while in, in Haiti and I can tell you that's a third world health service with women dying, no access to health care, no access to blood transfusion, antibiotics and so on. That's what it's like in the third world. We have a first world health service with a lot of problems. Everywhere has a lot of problems. The NHS has a lot of problems and so on. So it's uh, we're not the worst by any means. Okay. Just uh, Patricia Hughes is chairwoman of the Midwives Association of Ireland. Maybe just first of all, just explain to listeners what it is that you do in your role. Uh, so the position of a chairperson of the Midwives Association of Ireland is uh, an elected position. I was just elected in there in March. Uh, the MAI is a professional association of midwives and we are there to support midwives, empower women and we want to support education and advocacy amongst women and babies and their families. And we are lobbying for better improvements in maternity services in Ireland. My own job is as a self-employed midwifery and nursing consultant so that's what I do in my day job. My experience, and I've spent thirty over 30 years in maternity services in the UK and Ireland, the last 20 years in Ireland, and I also have experience in New Zealand. I also work on a voluntary basis in Palestine in a, in a maternity hospital there. Um, is that it's generally good. There's a lot to be optimistic about, but that's not enough to be um, uh, complacent about. There are significant improvements which can and should be made without delay. Okay. What, what are they, Patricia? Um, certainly, I agree with Peter in terms of the organisation of the maternity services in Ireland needs a fundamental overhaul. There is over-medicalisation of services provided to women and um, the services are overstretched and underfunded for what they are trying to do. Women receive too much too soon in terms of interventions and they receive too little too late in terms of necessary interventions. So we end up with complications amongst our women attending our maternity services that shouldn't have arisen had we not intervened so widely and so broadly. And, and why, why is that? Just We've to done that because we've had a very medicalised, blanketized approach to maternity care in Ireland. So we've... Um, largely been providing a one-size-fits-all and that's not necessary nor is it desirable and Peter has mentioned that our you know our um, maternal mortality and morbidity figures aren't the best and certainly one Mm. of our our rising problems is major obstetric hemorrhage and you hear frequently about the rising intervention rates induction rates of labor and cesarean section rates and those have an impact on women and bleeding in future pregnancies there's a couple of issues I'll come back to Patricia there in, in, in just a few moments time but um, I suppose Cretia Lynch is the chairperson of AIMS so you're obviously lobbying and part of a group that's looking at very specifically focusing on improvements within maternity services just give us your kind of an, an overview of where we're at today. Okay thanks Andrea. Um, I suppose I came to working in a voluntary capacity to try and improve the maternity services in Ireland because when I became pregnant there was absolutely no information whatsoever to me as a pregnant person, on what my choices were, on what types of care were available to me, on how I would be cared for, actually on anything. And it was really difficult to find things out. And I had my first baby, my poor child who's doing the leaving cert now, um, I had my first baby 18 years ago. And really, in many respects, a lot of that hasn't changed. We have the internet now, so a lot of women are able to access information online. 
they're looking at what's available in other countries. Then they realize those things are not available here. We still have a situation where the uh, GP is effectively the gatekeeper in how you can be cared, in what way you can be cared, who can be your lead carer and so on. And I think for me, uh, my my impression of the maternity services is not based on working within it. My impression of the maternity services is based on what women say, what women feel, how they act with their children, how they're catapulted into parenting, how they are with their babies, how they struggle. And I think very, very little attention is paid to that. I think in order to find out what's wrong, we actually need to know, and what's working well, mm. we actually need to look at what women's experiences are. And what we've done up till now is we've asked women to tick a series of boxes. You know, was your care excellent, fair, poor, good or horrendous? No one's going to tick horrendous. Most people are going to tick good or excellent. And then we wrap that up and we put it in our back pocket and we think that everything's fine. We judge our maternity services with respect to other countries in terms of mortality. You know, it's not really enough to say you survived your maternity experience to say that it went well. We need to look a lot more at morbidity and we need to look a lot more at mental health issues because I think we're only just starting to expose that now, that women's experiences of the of the maternity services are very multifaceted. They experience clinical care, which I can say for most women we come into contact with is actually excellent. Yeah. They experience the way they receive that care, which actually is not so good. Um, they experience how they're left afterwards, how they're left feeling, how they may have small things like tears that are not healing well, a cesarean scars that get infected, babies that are not feeding well, feeling down and not having anyone to support them. So there's a sort of a communications, an absence in communication. Is that the, the issue? Well, I think that communication, good communication requires time. And I think we're going to come on to that in a little while in order to fully sit with somebody at what is uh, essentially a rite of passage, a very transformative time in a woman's life, you need time to be there with them. Okay. You need to be there with them throughout their journey. And our maternity services, for the most part, do not offer what we call continuity of care. You see somebody different every time you go, so you can't build a relationship with somebody. The person you might meet during your labour may have a shift change in between or may be taken care of, although they shouldn't be, uh, more than one woman at a time. Uh, you may not meet that person postnatally. So care is quite fragmented. And then midwives, uh, doctors, consultants are all under pressure. Mm. And they do not really have the time okay. to understand what women need. I'm going to come back to a couple of those points. I just want to ask you, Grisha, just you mentioned there at the outset that um, when I suppose women here in Ireland who've maybe just gone through or are going through a, um, a maternity procedure, that they look at other services that are available in other countries that we don't have. Just Can you just mention what they are? What don't we have in Ireland that's good in other countries? Oh, sure. Um, you don't have to go too far. You can just uh, stand in Louth and look over the border. <laughs> so, uh, for example, in Northern Ireland, I'm just going to take Northern Ireland because mm, it's our yeah, nearest. Of course, and huge, nearest, easy, easily accessible yeah, as well. So ne yeah. Nearest neighbour. So, for example, in, in Northern Ireland, you have a very large number of alongside midwifery units. We don't really have that across the board here, although our national maternity strategy is supposed to offer mm. that. You have freestanding birth centres in Northern Ireland, which we don't have, and our national maternity strategy will not be offering that. Um, you have a greater choice in terms of lead care provider. Uh, so you can go with a midwife if you want to, or you can go with an obstetrician if you want to, or something in between. Uh, you also have uh, private options. We have some private options, but not a full range here. 
And you also have situations where um, you're part of a a care team. So often you're you're dealt with by a team of midwives. You get to know those midwives. And that's uh, that's very familiar. You have the option of water births in most hospitals, which you don't have. I mean, the list is quite long. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But it's just to give us a kind of a, a, a general sense, maybe for people who look, who've, who've never experienced the, the maternity services in Ireland, or maybe it's been, you know, quite a number of years since they have. Um, Dr. Peter Boylan, I know you're not here to to represent government's national strategy or the HSE, but just no. in, in, your, in your own experience, you know, obviously dealing with maternity maternity services, like the number of issues raised by both Patricia and, and Cretia that I think seem like fairly reasonable requests like access to services, you know, um, the ability of being able to have one lead contact in a hospital in terms yes. of the kind, you know, the, who you're, the, if you go in one day and you're dealing with Peter Boylan that you know you're going to deal with, you know, you and you afterward. And, and I think that's sure. very important for people. Mm. Why do we get stuff like that wrong? Like why, why is that so hard to try and, you know, to organise that people would have one lead contact team or that they can see the same face on a regular basis? Well, I think it's a question of organisation largely. There are systems in place like the Domino system, which is in some hospitals in the country. And that's called, uh, it's uh, Domino is domiciliary in and out. Uh, And basically what that is, a team of midwives who look after women who are at low risk of of having any problems. And they will see them in their homes. Uh, And then when the woman comes in, she'll meet one of those midwives in labour who will stay with her for the duration of her labour within the confines of a shift system, obviously. And then uh, she'll go home as soon as possible. That might be within a few hours of the birth. And then one of that same team of midwives will visit her at home afterwards. Now, that's a very successful scheme. Um, It's also very expensive because you've got a small number of midwives looking after a relatively small number Mm. of women. And can I just ask you, Peter, sorry, is that same, that domino system, as you describe it, is that available to both the public and private patient? There's no... It is, yes. It is, okay. It is, yes, indeed. And it's something that that, uh, most obstetricians that I'm aware of would would encourage. It's a tremendously successful system and it's one that works extremely well. The way the system works, for example, when I was uh, working, retired now, but when I was a consultant in Hollow Street, I would have a clinic where my name would be on the chart. But there'd be about a hundred women going through that clinic each each morning uh, on my on my day, so I would see the women at the first visit, and then I would see them if there were any problems. So I was at the clinic, and there were four or five uh, rooms where women were being seen during their pregnancies. At the end of that, uh, one of the rooms was run by a midwife only, and if she had a problem, then she came to me. So I would go down and see the woman and have a chat with her, and you know, talk to the midwife what the problem was. And then that's that. So that that woman would see that midwife the whole way through her pregnancy. But the very nature of, of, and it comes back to the numbers of staff that Mm. we have. We don't have enough midwives. We don't have enough doctors. I think it's really important that doctors and midwives work together and put the woman at the centre of this. So it's not about the doctors. It's not about the midwives. What's best for midwives? What's best for doctors? What's best for the woman? What's best for the woman is that she gets the minimum amount of intervention that's necessary in a timely fashion, as Patricia was saying, not too much intervention, but in a timely fashion. I thought and that was an interesting statement. Yeah. That you had too much intervention too soon and, and, and too, little too, too, too little too late. Too little. Yeah, and that's been one of the features of a lot of the incidents that I would have been involved in reporting on or reviewing, if you like, in various hospitals around the country, is that there was a, were delays in intervention and appropriate intervention. And that's a kind of a systems problem. And it speaks essentially to a lack of leadership, which is part of the problem of governance, which comes back to the separate budget, the separate management, the separate clinical leads in obstetrics around and gynaecology around the country. 
along the basis of the mastership system, which has been going for over 250 years. Now, um, the master is an unfortunate term. It's what it is. The captain of a ship is called the master of the ship. So it's effectively the captain of the team uh, who leads the whole midwives and doctors and everybody else in the hospital. And that's the sort of system that I think we should have around the country. Why is that so costly to implement? Because you talked about the cost being a factor in all of this. No, the cost of the domino scheme. Is where the cost, okay. That's the cost, yeah, where you've got a small number of staff. The biggest cost in the health service is staff. And the only way to save money is by reducing the number of staff, in, in effect. And we see that um, in the hospitals. For example, um, when I was Master Hollow Street, we would have to have cutbacks because we were overspending our budget. So what we would do is we would close the gynaecology operating lists except for emergencies and cesareans and miscarriages and so on. And we would um, give staff uh, a break which would save money. But it's a very difficult thing to do to save a lot of money in the health service because staff numbers and staffing is mm. the biggest cost. And, and they're terribly important. We don't have enough midwives. Do you want to come in on that, Patricia? Yeah. I would. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I would. Um, I probably agree to disagree with Peter on the cost of the domino system. Um, the midwifery care for the the appropriately um, selected women is a very cost effective system. Um, I did a, a, just a quick audit on one day in, in, in my work mm. as a director of midwifery on a relatively low risk woman who went through the system and I counted 36 midwives names in her chart. She had eight antenatal visits to the hospital, she had an eight hour labour and she had two days in the postnatal ward. And that is unacceptable in this day and age. Continuity of care is essential for information to be retained and for it to make a difference for a woman. How can a woman possibly tell 36 people and that was just the midwives, not to mention the doctors. So, you know, we can talk about cost and we can talk about the broad interventions like cesarean sections and operations. But there's a morbidity, as Cresia yeah. explained, in terms of loneliness or perineums, breastfeeding problems. And there's a group in Trinity... Uh, undertaking a long-term study called the MAMI study, which has stunning results about the morbidity suffered by women, including incontinence, anal and, and, and urinary incontinence, breakdown of relationships, and so much. And a lot of this can be dealt with by good continuity of care, ensuring information is not lost, providing support in the postnatal period. We need a national community midwifery service for women in the postnatal period. Mm. I can tell you it would pay itself Mm. multiple times over. I saw on the paper yesterday how the state claims agency had to be, but their budget bumped up by another 46 million last year just to keep to pay out on all the negligence or litigation, not just ne negligence, but litigation claims. And a huge um, percentage of those arise from maternity services. Mm, yeah. And I really think we have got to somebody has got to say stop. We were just talking outside about maternal mortality in the US and what's happening there. We have tended to follow the US in so much way, so many ways. We've privatization of of healthcare. I know from working in a voluntary hospital that a voluntary hospital of the size of any of the three in Dublin requires 60, 60 to 70 million a year to be run. About 45 million of that is given by the HS 
legacy and the hospital is required to raise the other 50 and whatever the balance of that through private care so there are inbuilt incentives to look for private care and a woman who's seeking private care has already paid three times for her care she's paid through national her national taxation for the maternity and infant care scheme which is free to her she's paid her VHI or her boop or layer and she probably needs to cash up as well because that uh, pro program is unlikely to cover her her care. So women who go privately are paying threefold for private care that should be and is available in the public system. Okay. But we have an inbuilt incentive. I just want to say we have two midwifery late units in Ireland, Cavan and Drada. They're 15 years old. There's nobody marketing them. And as Creechie said, there's 11 midwifery late units in Northern Ireland for 23,000 births. We have 65 5,000 births. We've two midwifery led units which are greatly underutilised and greatly undermarketed. Okay. And why is that? So the, these are a couple of points I suppose that uh, Cresha Lynch, uh, the chairperson of AIMS that you had brought up that we're obviously kind of discussing in, in, in more detail as well. But I mean, I, I assume you would agree with much of what Patricia has to say there. Well, I think it's actually worth pointing out that women do explain their circumstances 36 times in their antenatal period. As a care provider, because you might see the woman once, you might not be aware of that. But as the person who's actually travelling through the system, women will tell you, I can't believe it. The, 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 the appointment was only five minutes. I spent three minutes saying everything that I'd said last time, and then I just got my two minutes and that was it. And then the second thing I actually do want to say, because I'm all about choice for women. It doesn't have to be that all women want to come in and have a, a, a very normal kind of natural type physiological birth. Some women want to have continuative care, they want private care and then they are very surprised when they book a private obstetrician and they get to birth in a public labour ward and they are really unprepared for that. So if we're really going to offer full choices to people, we also have to consider that, that if you're going to offer a fully privatised option for people, whether it's with a private midwife or whether it's with a private obstetrician, women feel that they're being undersold that private option if they end up on a public labour ward. Okay. Why is that? I presume that's to do with um, the availability of, of resources on that given day? or Well, they get better care if they're looked after by um, in the public system because um, you get people who are very experienced. And I think it's really important not to separate out women into separate um, areas. Um, I think it's really important. For example... The midwifery-led units um, are effectively what happens in some hospitals at the moment, even though they're not called that. So, for example, um, in Hollow Street, which is where I have the most experience, obviously, each woman in labour would have her own midwife. So she would have continuity of care throughout her labour, which is part of a package of care that that Hollow Street Mm. has developed over the years. But I agree, um, it's very important to have continuity of care where it's possible. Um, and what and are the obstacles the to having that, 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 that I, option or that possibility? I think staffing numbers staffing, yeah, okay. and, and organisation, a combination. I mean, as Patricia said, it's, it's, you know, there's no reason why a woman should have to see that number of different people throughout It seems pregnancy. extraordinary. 36. Yeah, but it's a, but it's a regular a, feature. And I think the other thing that's worth pointing out <clears throat> is that in order to receive those 36 different contacts, many women are travelling very long mm. distances. Now, we're sitting here in a studio in Dublin, um, but I would know many, many women who are travelling from County Kildare to come in for the five-minute appointment into the Coombe or into Hollow Street or into the Rotunda. And 
they're driving in. It's not ecologically, if nothing else, it's not ecologically sustainable. Well, traffic, is, uh, traffic is pressurising at the best of times in Dublin. Um, yeah. And also, then when they're actually coming in for their labour, <clears throat> they're going to have to drive that distance. And trying to judge that distance is a real difficulty for partners. I'm speaking to all you guys and other partners out there now. I feel your pain. <laughs> Because, you know, it's very difficult for you to decide, is this the right time? Do I want to be driving up mm. the Lewis lanes up the N7 or not? And that, that, that that's very difficult for people. But going out to the country, for example, if you go out to rural Cork, the, the distance, the travelling distance can be over two and a half hours if you're going to West Cork, coming into the centralised uh, CUMH. If you're in Kerry, the different the distances are long too. If you're in rural County Clare, West Clare, the distances are also long. So... In a way, we've centralised our maternity mm. service quite some time ago. In the 70s, we centralised mm. everything. I mean, my uh, husband, for example, was born in a maternity unit in Tipperary, and there were hundreds of these. And then gradually they all closed, became very, very centralised. And there were reasons for that. Mm-hmm. But at this point, are we serving women well and their families by dragging them very, very long distances for antenatal care, expulsing them in, up into the after postnatal care where they don't get a lot of help in their community because they've been in a centralised location and asking them to judge how to travel in labour while you're having contractions very, very long distances. And one of the issues I think that Patricia did raise and that is associated with um, more, if you like, low-tech units is having more of them and having them in more rural areas, as you see, as Patricia said, is that, in Northern Ireland. Is that something similar, I suppose, to the idea of the, the primary care centre, the idea of the kind of more tiered offering of facilities, mini hospitals, I think it's, if it's you like. important to distinguish between a first birth, uh, which is where the vast majority of complications arise and where the vast majority of liability exposure, as Patricia was referencing there, arises, and births afterwards. If a woman has an uncomplicated first birth with a normal delivery, the chances of her having a problem on any subsequent birth is absolutely minimal. Where she has problems on her first birth, that can colour her attitude towards childbirth, colour her attitude towards her child, her husband, her partner, and have a deeply um, distressing and, mm. and damaging emotional impact on her. So the really important thing in obstetric care is to get the first birth right. So that's where the investment needs to go in a, in a, in a, in a really uh, important way. With regard to liability insurance and exposure and so on and the cost of the state, it would be much better if the money that is spent and is set aside was invested in caring for children who have a disability from from birth, whether it's a fault of anybody or not. All those children should be cared for equally. And then if the parents or if anybody else has a problem with the care, there should be a recognised group of recognised experts who can look at the care and say, you need to change this, that or the other in your hospital or your individual practice for a particular doctor okay. or, or what, group. What's, what's your view on that, Patricia Hughes? I, I, I agree. I think that there's merit in a no-fault system. I think it is terribly distressing for parents to have to um, uh, enter the legal system and and and... Um, you know, continue for years before they can get a settlement and that will pay for maybe speech therapy or occupational therapy or house improvements for their, their child who has long-term and may perhaps lifelong needs. So I think that needs to be addressed really soon. Um, I, In terms of the first births, there's been huge studies that have shown that um, for first births at home, a home birth, for first babies, there's a slight increase of risk to the baby 
baby. But apart from that, for second subsequent pregnancies, until you get into the higher um, multiple births, home birth is a safe option and it is as safe as a, as a hospital birth for such women. We don't have that system really in Ireland. We have a tiny home birth service subcontracted out by the HSE to less than a dozen midwives. And, um, and a couple of hospitals as well. And a couple of hospitals. Yeah. Well, just one hospital, I think, in the National Maternity yeah. provide the, 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 the current home birth service mm. at the moment. So it's, we have fra- you know, it's just another element of the fragmentation of our service. You cannot come to Ireland and say you cannot go to each of the 19 hospitals and find the same service. It's not like that. It's very different. And I suppose that mm. comes in, Cretia, to part of the element you were talking about earlier as well, about the availability of options for people that they get in other countries. Absolutely. And I think, you know, even if we go beyond that and just look at what's available within the Republic, you find that different people, depending on where they live, will have different options. And that's not really acceptable in the sense that uh, we understand, for example, that cancer care is a very specialised service and we understand that the care might need to be centralised, it might need to be centralised in major centres. But everybody goes through birth. Most people will have a normal, safe delivery. And if there are problems, we do have tertiary centres. And we really need to ensure that in all areas of Ireland, uh, women have access to the types of care that Patricia has discussed. They have access to home birth care, they have access to midwifery-led units, they have access to private care. They have access to the whole gamut of, of things, not just, oh, you have to live in Dublin or you have to live in uh, Cork or you have to live in Drogheda to have access mm. to those services. And I think also picking up what you were just talking about in terms of when things do go wrong. And, you know, it's a sad fact, but it's reality that nothing is guaranteed in birth. There's always an option that something might happen to mother or baby. I think sometimes we take for granted absolutely what actually the woman is going through, you know, and, and we we take it because it happens, as you mentioned, so frequently mm. on a daily basis, you know, that mm. it's that people only take. And for granted. realistic expectations are really important. Um, I mean, Patricia was talking about you know problems with with uh, continence after birth, and and that's something that women need to know about. So I think it comes back to education, mm. and the really importance again on a first birth of getting education, antenatal education right and making sure that women get that education and that the education is accurate and that it's not not all airy-fairy and happy-clappy. Birth can be an extremely traumatic experience Mm. Um, but it can also be one of the most rewarding things that a woman can go through and, and, you know, it can be such a fulfilling experience (coughs) and that's what the whole purpose of an approach to birth where a woman has good education antenatally where she comes into labour spontaneously and where she has one midwife looking after her, providing emotional support through the labour and being there for the birth. And that is the midwives who uh, are there to assist at the birth. For example, with private patients, when I would be there at the delivery, I mean, women would often say, will you deliver my baby, Dr. Boyle? And I'd say, no, you'll deliver your baby, but I'll be there if there's a problem. But the midwives would be the ones who would be holding the head and so on. But I'd be there if there's a mm. problem. And that's, I think that's... Probably the way understand to work actually yeah. what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a number. Can, sorry, can I just go back to finishing my point there? Yeah, just for, yeah. Do we just need to take a very short break? But yeah. Okay, so just you know what both Patricia and Peter were saying that when things do go wrong, I think that one of the things that we really have to look at is how women interact with their caregivers once things have go, gone wrong. Mm, um, there is a yeah. service called HSE. Have your say, and. I know it's a rival radio station, but 
in two months ago, there was a huge outpouring of women's experiences and stories on the Joe Duffy show on Liveline. I mean, it was actually a national phenomenon. And that kind of public outpouring, that desperation to be heard, to be validated and to be listened to, indicated to us that HSE Have Your Say is not working for women for when things go wrong. Maybe not wrong enough to take a legal case, but when things go wrong, they really need okay. to be looked at. OK, there's a couple of different points we're going to come to in just a few moments. We do need to take a short break. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back in just a few moments. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. Today we're discussing Ireland's maternity services. We're looking at best practice and the services that are currently available and how they can be improved. Our panel is still with us today. Patricia Hughes, who's the chairwoman of the Midwives Association of Ireland. Dr Peter Boylan, former master of the National Maternity Hospital. And also Cresha Lynch, who's the chair of AIMS, the Association for Improvements in Maternity Services in Ireland. And my thanks to you all for staying with us today. We discussed quite a lot in terms of sort of an overview of where maternity services are at in Ireland now in 2019 in the first part of the programme. But the one thing I suppose that came up time and time again was the staffing levels and retention of staff and the recruitment of more staff, I suppose, very specifically in uh, gynaecological and maternity areas. Um, Can I ask you, Patricia Hughes, why is it so difficult to recruit midwives in Ireland today? Like, what's, what's the problem? Well, I think there is a, a number of problems, Andrea. Uh, I suppose the first one is that midwives are uh, um, are educated in through a four-year degree course or an eighteen-month postgraduate course if they're already a nurse to uh, provide maternity services, and they're trained with a very good evidence base. Now, what you see in practice often is very different to uh, what, what, what's taught or what's taught as the ideal. And we've explained some of the problems. The fragmentation of services and the lack of continuity is enough to create significant burnout for staff. And staff will often leave looking to work in systems that are better organised. So they might, might look to the NHS or Australia. There's also the terms and conditions. And whilst those have been addressed to some degree, I think some of the situations around cities like Dublin, where housing is a particularly unattainable due to the rising house prices, that has pushed midwives out of the city. Rents are, are, are unaffordable based on their salaries. And so together it's made for a kind of a a recipe of of difficulty for for midwives and nurses. Mm. Okay. so can I ask you about in terms of the terms and conditions of the the T's and C's, we'll say, for the likes of people in midwifery versus the general nursing sector? Is there a reason, one particular reason, I I suppose aside from kind of the obvious in terms of rent and all of that that goes with it, that more people aren't going into that sector. Well, certainly the um, the, the mid you enter midwifery by applying to the CAO, and the CAO the points for midwifery are quite high, but they get a full class every every single year in the universities through the CAO. The problem is is the depreciation, then once they go into those systems, they are not treated like students of history or politics. They are required to do their clinical placements, which is 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 really necessary to become a midwife? Mm. It's a hands-based um, um, job as well as uh, as an academic job, and um, you have to be in the hospital at half seven in the morning. You have to be there on a Saturday morning. You're on no pay. When I was a student midwife and indeed a student nurse, our accommodation was provided at very affordable rents. Our uniforms were provided, and we were paid. Our students now have moved into the college, but they haven't quite. We haven't quite left the full apprenticeship system. So we expect midwives to, student midwives to be on 
duty at half seven on a Saturday morning when the bus wouldn't necessarily pull up outside the hospital in the city. Okay, and so there's a couple the country, of practical concerns. Practical you're saying concerns, that. and and also uh, certainly in the last 15, 20 years, with rising house prices, shift work has changed from eight hour shifts to 12, 13 hour shifts, and you will find mm. midwives doing two and three, 12, 12 okay. 13 hour shifts together. Just give us a, give us a sense, Patricia, of when people go in to they go through the college system, they yes. graduate, they qualify, they get a job, and they're in. This was effectively what is a permanent job. Why yes. can you not? What's happening then that staff aren't staying there? Why are staff not being retained? Um, again, going back to the reasons that I spoke about, you're working in a system that's extremely fragmented. You do not have time when you are when you're one of 36 women midwives providing care for that woman and you're not retaining or you're not having the sufficient time to build the rapport with that woman gain her information mistakes can occur it's very defensive it's very litigious and you become almost like a sacrificial lamb in a service that isn't working you know and many midwives will report this to us in the midwife association they leave work at the end of 13 hours feeling utterly frustrated that they have not been able to provide the care that they know they should give and they know the woman requires. So is the workload too big, is it? It, The workload could be a lot more sustainable if the services were organised in a different fashion. I'll come to you perhaps, uh, Peter Boylan, in just a moment on this, but Cretia Lynch, just give us your view from talking to patients, I suppose, as to um, the difficulties that they see arising out of staffing levels and retention of staff? Mm. Well, I think here you see an interesting dichotomy because when pregnant people go through the maternity services, they do fall in love with their midwives. You know, they really, really value the care, the one-to-one care we've already spoken about, especially in labour, that they get from a midwife. And yet we're in a society where society doesn't seem to vis-a-vis the payment schedules, etc., doesn't seem to value midwives. And I think that, that, that that's, a, that's a big issue. But I think that with the, the lack of midwives and the high turnover of midwives, obviously we've spoken about the lack of time for women and sometimes not getting one-to-one care when you should get one-to-one care. For example, I've seen women who, who are on epidurals who should have one-to-one care in labour and they don't. There's a break. Midwife needs a break and she's woman's left on her own with a partner. I've seen women who are taking a syntocin in drip which can have very big effects in a very small amount of time, and she's left because the midwife needs a break. So there are issues like that. Um, But I think also uh, there are issues in terms of postnatal care, so there aren't enough midwives to look after women postnatally because most of the midwives have gone to the antenatal care where you really want to make sure a woman and her baby is healthy, Mm. or they've gone to intrapart, to the labour part of the care. And then in the postnatal care, you've seen reports of women who say, well, there was one midwife on and there were 18 of us in the ward and five of the women had twins. Now, what are your chances of getting Mm. breastfeeding support as a second time? I'm saying this clearly now, as a second time mum who didn't manage it the first time. Your chances are very low because... The midwife is going to have to take clinical care of the women who have had the cesareans, take clinical care of the twins and other neonatal mm, issues. Okay. And you as a second time mum are probably quite low down on that agenda. So there's a lot, I suppose, in terms of kind of the, the, the usual, if you like, complaints that we talk about in terms of staffing and attracting staff, particularly in, in the midwifery um, element of it into this particular industry. Can I ask you from the from the clinical perspective as well, is it 
is it difficult, more difficult, Peter Boylan, to get the likes of the um, gynaecologists into Irish hospitals? Is that is that a problem as well? That's a real problem at the moment. Uh, over 700 consultants have left the Irish Public Health Service in recent years because of primarily working conditions. And we have an awful lot of specialists working abroad who are in world-class institutions in the United States, Australia, the UK and around the world. And they are willing to come home. Um, but the working conditions that they're coming home to are not suitable and, uh, quite frankly, unacceptable. You'll turn up at a clinic, for example, a, a surgeon might get appointed in a, in a hospital. They turn up and they find that they don't have an operating list. Uh, so they see patients, but they can't operate on them. And that's just kind of ludicrous. And uh, career development in, in Ireland is not uh, sufficiently well developed, like for midwives and for, mm. for doctors as well. Both these things apply to, to nurses and midwives and doctors. We have the lowest numbers per head of population of consultants in every single specialty, no matter what, and the same uh, with the midwives. In London, for example, they got a London waiting, which is an extra pay for midwives and, and for nurses. And we could have certainly have a Dublin waiting. I think that would be yeah, worthwhile. Yeah, but a lot of people talk about the, 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 the Dublin sort of a top-up, isn't it, or some sort of an urbanised... Yeah, brand. well, don't, don't mention top-ups, but I think uh, Dublin waiting in terms of, of extra pay. And for example, if, if, a, if a nurse in an operating theatre, say, uh, wants, or they want them to work on a Saturday extra, they'll get six euros for doing that extra for working on a Saturday. I mean, that's laughable and certainly not worthwhile. So people who suggest, for example, that... Hospitals should work seven days a week and all the rest operating theatres. It's a very simplistic, unrealistic, unrealistic approach to solving a lot of the problems. It comes back really to, as we've been talking about, organisation and uh, making the jobs attractive. Mm. And, you know, two midwives looking after that number of women is... It doesn't work. Yeah. They don't have the time. Well, look, the general improvement in, the in, in the health service is something that we've, we've discussed previously and something that I've no doubt we will be discussing again. I'm just interested, though, in terms of um, the number of gyne- uh, gynaecological consultants in Ireland. Mm. How many of those, Peter, are dealing with the various different types of, we'll say, screening programmes that we have as well, you know, as opposed to women coming in with um, maternity yeah. issues or gynaecological issues as well? Is that part of the reason there's such a big workload because there's an overlap with, with public screening too? Well, you're talking about cervical screening, yeah. I presume. Um, cervical screening is done um, by a smear test, which is taken by GPs and some by doctors in clinics, but mostly in the in the in community. The GP, yeah. Those smears are then sent to a laboratory. So the whole um, smear test problem is a laboratory problem. It's not a doctor problem. The doctor problem has arisen because of communication. But the problem with the, with the whole smear you know, controversy, I don't want to call it a scandal, but the controversy is primarily due to the laboratories, not due to the doctors. We'll leave the cervical churches for a moment, but what I'm just interested Mm. in is that for, we'll say, the woman that then gets called for the coloscopy down in the hospital, is that that then part, I suppose, of the the long delays to some of these waiting lists for access to services? That's what I'm just wondering. It's the same gynaecologist. Yeah, it is. Yes, absolutely. Now, before the whole um, free screening thing uh, came in, um, free smears came in after, after the controversy, uh, the colposcopy service and the screening service was working extremely well. There were very short waiting lists. Women were being seen within the um, internationally accepted um, and monitored mm. and audited time period. So the service was working extremely well. Now it has become completely overloaded. And also the doctors are feeling a little bit hard done by because they weren't responsible for the uh, differential smear test problem. And when you audit a smear, if you know a woman has cancer and you look at a cervical smear, 
you're much more likely to find an abnormality than if it's done completely blinded. So if you're given if if you're given a hundred smears and you're supposed to pick out the one where there was an error in classification, you're much less likely to pick up that than if you know and you're given one smear and you know that that woman has developed cancer but the smear has been classified as normal, you'll find an abnormality in that smear. Okay, That's just the way the world That's works. That's how it works. Okay, yeah. we'll just do stay with us. We'll be back with more from our panel in just a moment. Between the Lines on Newstalk. We are welcome back to the final part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're discussing Ireland's maternity services, discussing best practice and how services can be improved. Still with us today, our panel, Chairwoman of the Midwives Association of Ireland, Patricia Hughes, Cretia Lynch, who's the Chair of AIMS, the Association for Improvements in Maternity Services in Ireland, and also Dr Peter Boylan, the former Master of the National Maternity Hospital. Um, look, we've discussed quite a lot today in terms of what's there and where the problems arise and now I suppose really we want to focus on what can we do to sort of improve things going forward. If I can maybe just start with yourself, uh, Patricia Hughes, as the, the person representing the midwives of Ireland, what are the key issues, aside from the, the, the pay and various different elements like that in terms of the T's and C's, but how do you think the service can be improved going forward? Well, I suppose it's really important not to um, be overly pessimistic about services either. And a lot of improvements are ongoing and have taken place. We have a much more informed population. And as Christian mentioned, the the, um, the outpouring to um, on the national media recently, what, whilst distressing, was welcome. Because certainly that's something that we've had a problem with, that women aren't necessarily finding their voice. And they are now. And I think that's really welcome and will help drive improvements. We have, I I recently saw the HSE launched a My Pregnancy book, which is a 238-page Bible of the services and will help inform women. It's in paper copy and online. I think that's really useful. We have the first national maternity strategy, which Mm. sets a vision and mission and a plan for the next 10 years. And we have a National Women and Infants Office which have an implementation plan and they have 77 um, um, action points and they're working on those. We have HICWA standards which are will, will set which are setting the standards for um, maternity care. And we have a well-educated train and trained workforce in terms of midwives, nurses and doctors. What we need to do is to keep them all working in Ireland and keep them sustained in their jobs. We have good evidence and we have good research going on. I've mentioned the MAMI study and um, we have national bereavement standards which are excellent and we have a specialist perinatal mental health m- model of care. And we, But what we're, we are having problems is we have recruitment bans. We need the bans lifted on recruitment in maternity services. We need the National Women in an Infants programme front-loaded. They had to take a cut in their funding last year, according to the director. When I when I attended a conference, he said the funding had been cut for this year for going forward. They need to be front-loaded to make those actions a reality. And we need to seriously address the continuity of care and we need to drive those changes so that women are getting better care, midwives are better, more effectively used. That will increase job satisfaction and will increase retention and recruitment rates. Can I come to you, Dr. Peter Boylan, I suppose from the national maternity strategy and also from a clinical perspective, how do you think we can improve the services here? Well, I think implement the National Maternity Strategy and as Patricia said, the National Women and Infants Programme is doing that and they have a series of actions and they probably need more funding. Um, It always comes back to more funding. 
But I think other things can be done and the cancer service was revolutionised in this country and results have improved immeasurably um, by having it as a separate budget, separate governance, separate management. And that's what needs to happen with the maternity and gynaecological services in this country. I've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, a different governance model so that they're not integrated into general hospitals because that just doesn't work. It's been disastrous all over the country. And um, I think also the uh, developing better, making work practices and working conditions much more attractive Mm. so that we can get people back into the system. You mentioned the education element of all of this too, I suppose, for the actual, for the people that are availing of the services. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, on the the National Airways recently and all that, that, um, the controversies and the problems that women were phoning in with, my experience has been that... um, the problem isn't the problem. The problem is how the problem is dealt with, if that makes any sense. So the really important thing is to listen to women, uh, not to tell them what the problems are, but to listen what they feel are the problems because the service is there for them. It's not here for us or for the midwives or for anybody else. It's there for the women. So they're the ones who need to tell us and we need to listen to them. And just communication is mostly just listening. Can I come to you, Preeta Lynch, somebody has to get the final word today, but just in terms of, I suppose, the, the top areas that you think need to be addressed? Well, I think that women really need to be put, or pregnant people, because they're not all women, need to be put at the centre of their care. And that is really summing up what the other two speakers have said. So being at the centre of your care means that you're a partner in your own care. That means that all decisions taken about your care are relayed to you. That means you know your caregiver, your caregiver discusses everything with you, you're informed, you get that information antenatally. It's always, I hate to use the word, topped up as you go through your maternity care experience. Um, If there's any decisions that are difficult, you're definitely a part of them. You're listened to. If you have any concerns, they are absolutely taken on board. And then if something doesn't go right for you, you're also listened to. But in terms of specifics, um, I sat on the National Maternity Strategy Committee and we spent you know, six very long months detailing exactly what was needed in order to improve our maternity services. And those uh, points are there. Uh, they need to be actioned. They need to be implemented. And most importantly, they need to be funded. And the Minister of Health needs to absolutely ring fence funding for maternity, okay. not have it fluid. And just before we finish, I also want to say, Andrea, that if anybody listening to this programme is having any issues or is having any um sort of triggers about their maternity experience that AIMS does run a support service and you can access that uh, via support at aimsirelandoneword.com so just I know that sometimes these programs can trigger things Mm -hmm, for people in the early postnatal period and I think the final word probably is going to be about a healthy society so we need to ensure that uh, the babies we bring into the world are, are given as, as, as the best start possible, which is going to be via breastfeeding. We need to be ensure that the mothers that we've created are going to be in the best mental and emotional state to look after their babies. So that means ensuring they get really good community-based postnatal care. Really insightful conversation and my thanks to you all for joining us uh, today as well for all of that. Patricia Hughes, Chairperson of the Midwives Association of Ireland, Dr Peter Boylan, former Master of the National Maternity Hospital and Cretia Lynch, the Chairperson of AIMS, the Association for Improvements in Maternity Services in Ireland. That's all we have time for today. My thanks to all of the panel. If you've missed any of the programme, you can download the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or search for News Talks Between the Lines in iTunes or any other podcast player. My thanks to the production team, Elaine Power and Stephen Jordan. We'll be back again 
again with Between the Lines this time next week and I'll be back with Breakfast Briefing on Monday morning from 6. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day.